When I was in seminary, one of the things that the preaching professors would encourage us to do whenever it was possible uh, was to know the audience that we were preaching to. <clears throat> the encouragement was to know the audience that you knew how your message would be received, uh, to know your audience so you know how best to communicate the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whenever I'm given the privilege to step into the pulpit and deliver a sermon, my number one goal is to communicate clearly and effectively the love and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to invite people into an even deeper relationship with Jesus. When you seek to know your audience, you understand when it's necessary to build some sort of foundation before you reach uh, the main point of your sermon. For example, when I exegete the community here at ECC, I'm aware that there's a population among us that has a deep love for the Green Bay Packers. I'm also aware uh, that this is helpful in selecting sermon illustrations, but it's also helpful in exercising my pastoral empathy because there's a lot of angry Packers fans out there today. And as we talk about anger, I thought I'd bring that to the forefront. Um, but as we continue in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it's clear that Jesus knew his audience well as well, or at least he made some strong assumptions about the audience that was present on the hillside that day. It's possible he was talking directly to his audience. It's possible he sensed there was some uneasiness on the hillside. But he starts off in verse 17 with a very direct and straightforward point. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Regardless of Jesus talking to the, the uneasiness on the hillside or to the crowd at large, it's clear that he understands that what he is communicating is quite radical. Jesus has just laid out a litany of blessing upon blessing upon people that the society would not have deemed blessed. And now he's about to launch into a, a discussion on the law that was going to continue to further stretch the minds of the people present. So Jesus is building rapport with the audience, building a level of reassurance that he's not abolishing anything. In fact, he's fulfilling the law and the prophets, a radical statement in and of itself. But at least it provides the listeners with reassurance that the law that they had sought to obey and would uphold their whole lives is also the firm foundation that Jesus preaches and teaches from as well. In fact, Jesus uses some pretty strong language as we heard about the steadfast nature of the law. He says not even the smallest stroke of the pen will disappear until everything is accomplished. Jesus has built rapport with his audience, showing them that he's fully committed to the law. The rapport that he's built doesn't make his message any easier to obey or understand, but at least it elevates the level of validity of his words. Further building rapport, Jesus quotes directly from the Old Testament found in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, two verses that simply and directly say, you shall not murder. He quotes then from Exodus 21 and states that those who do commit murder will be judged accordingly. Everyone who's listening on the hillside is agreeing with Jesus, following right along. It's hard to disagree with such straightforward restrictions and prohibitions. Do not murder. If you do, you will be judged. However, Jesus doesn't stop there. He further expands that restriction. Not only are you forbidden from murder, Jesus says if anyone is angry with their brother or their sister, 
they will be subject to judgment. So I have to imagine the crowd is following along nicely. Of course, you don't murder. If you do, you will be judged. That's a given. It's easy for them to follow along because like Kristen said in the children's moment, murder is not something that we uh, individually tend to deal with and it's likely that the people on the hill did not commit murder. But then Jesus makes this statement about anger. And all of a sudden, those on the hillside are feeling a bit guilty because they have all experienced anger, as have all of we. And I have to imagine that they had not only experienced anger in the past, it's possible uh, that some of them were sitting there that day still experiencing anger and bitterness, even while listening to the words of Jesus. This may have been part of Jesus knowing his audience well. One thing I know for certain is that this past year has caused me to experience a number of emotions personally, and I know our congregation has experienced a number of emotions as well. Over the past 12 months, we have all likely experienced the full range of emotions, and I would venture to believe that anger was experienced by the vast majority of us. Maybe you, like me, are angry at the recent spree of federal executions. Or maybe, like me, you're angry at the rate of abortions in our country. And maybe, like me, you're angry that far too many people have to fight so hard for basic rights like clean water, healthy food, safe shelter, and basic health care. Maybe, like me, you're angry that far too many black and brown children do not get to live up to their full potential because of systemic injustice and because a public school system in our country so often fails them. Maybe, like me, you're angry that women are marginalized and not paid fairly for their work. Maybe, like me, you experience anger when you see the violence erupting on our streets this past summer and even on the steps of our Capitol building only weeks ago. Maybe, like me, you are angry at much in our world. So maybe you are sitting here like the disciples on the hillside, feeling uneasy about your anger just like the disciples. In the late 70s, early 80s, Joseph Zinker and Robert Pluchek started talking about the four basic emotions that every human experiences. They named them scared, sad, mad, and glad. It's generally accepted that these four emotions are the most basic emotions. In fact, the University of Glasgow in Scotland published a report in 2014 that these four emotions, which they named happiness, sadness, anger, and fear are the most irreducible emotions. This study was based on our human ability to communicate emotion both with our affect and our facial expressions. I've been fascinated by the work on emotions and recently I was introduced to something called the feelings wheel. Here's an example of just shy of a hundred different words Uh, to help us understand or express our feelings. For the purpose of projection, I've cropped it a bit, but you can find the full version in the Bible app live event or by Googling Dr. Gloria Wilcox. But Dr. Wilcox took the work of Zinker and Pluchek and created a feelings wheel to help us understand and identify our emotions. The goal, as with many organizations, is to help people identify the emotions they're feeling. The feelings wheel is composed of an inner circle 
with six segments corresponding to six primary feelings, sad, mad, angry, happy, powerful, and peaceful. It then has two outer concentric circles that describe secondary feelings related to the primary ones. I think the concept of the feelings wheel is really helpful in identifying the core emotions of our feelings. Jesus said, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Subject to judgment, which is the same language he used only a sentence earlier when referring to murder. Jesus is certainly not abolishing the law. Instead, he is extending and intensifying the commandment. The question is, what do we do with our feelings of anger? Is Jesus truly forbidding us from experiencing the core emotion that we have all experienced and some of us may be experiencing even this morning? James Bryan Smith in the book The Good and Beautiful Life says that there are two types of anger, visceral and meditative anger, and that they are both fueled by two ingredients, unmet expectation and fear. He says when fear and unmet expectation are united, it ignites this strong emotion within us. We have scientific evidence that anger is a biological fact. Not only can scientists describe its physical basis in our limbic system but, uh, and the chemical correlates that are in our bodies when we experience anger, but the sociobiologists offer a speculation that anger has truly helped in the development of our society. If Jesus is truly forbidding us from experiencing anger, how are we even to exist? I don't know about you, but even with the utmost attention and energy placed on myself, the experience of the emotion of anger can be triggered uh, at any time. Personally, I try to describe my anger using one of the outer words, such as frustration, but I know deep down the root of my emotion is anger. So how do we reconcile what Jesus is saying in verse 22 with the reality that we are all human and we all experience anger from time to time? Some biblical scholars actually uh, try to reconcile a view that Jesus is truly condemning anger at all levels, that we should never experience anger. However, most scholarship does not agree with this interpretation. A few scribes, when copying the text from Matthew chapter 5, recognize that in some cases anger is justified. A few scribes copying it added the words angry without cause. I believe that anger is the correct response to injustice. And we are naturally opposed to injustice because we are created in the divine image of a just God. Righteous anger consists of getting angry at the things that anger God and then seeking a proper remedy for that wrong. If we're not made angry by suffering and cheating, indifference and injustice, then I don't think we're truly human. In Natasha Robinson's book, A Sojourner's Truth, she writes, As kingdom citizens, those given the authority to work and make God's kingdom known now, we must survey our social, political, and cultural climate to discern how God wants us to courageously speak and respond to the current issues of our day. This sentiment speaks well to what those scribes were adding to the verse. It also speaks well to who we know Jesus is and what he communicates through his words and the deeds of his ministry. 
when I was reading about some of the scholarship trying to suggest that Jesus was truly forbidding us from all forms of anger, there was a counter-narrative from some of the ancient fathers and philosophers. They were speaking to the reality of anger. John Chrysostom justified anger when it was used at a suitable time. Evagrius Ponticus said, Anger was appropriate when aimed at evil. John Climacus suggested that demons are a fitting target of righteous anger. Thomas Aquinas said, when anger is for good reason, it is praiseworthy. Martin Luther went as far to say that he preaches, teaches, and prays better when he is angry. And finally, Aristotle praised people who were angry at the, for the right reason, at the right time, and for the right amount of time. So I think we can see that there's a strong backing for the appropriate time to be angry. In fact, Jesus in his ministry was regularly courted by the religious leaders trying to trap him into breaking the law. And there were times when Jesus got pretty upset with the leaders that were around him. In the Gospel of Mark, there are two occasions where it says Jesus was indignant or angry. One of those examples is found in Mark chapter 3, verse 5. It reads, Jesus looked around them in anger and deeply distressed by their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. Jesus was clearly angry, yet we all know that Jesus is also sinless. Therefore, being angry is not always sinful. In fact, Jesus' anger was completely justified. Jesus was angry in that circumstance because the Pharisees would not answer his question about doing good on the Sabbath. It says that he was angry at their stubborn hearts. I think this is critical in the conversation of anger. The whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is focused on transforming the listener's hearts. Jesus is not only interested in right behavior, i.e. not murdering, he's also interested in right relationship and right heart disposition i.e. not carrying these painful emotions with us. Jesus looks at our inner disposition as well as our outer action. There needs to be correlation between our heart and our deeds. It's not simply enough to go about life and not murder. It's also necessary to carry in our hearts love and deal with the divisions that exist within us. Jesus is calling us to deal with our frustrations and our anger so that they don't lead us to make bad external decisions. I know for me it would take a lot of pent-up frustration and anger before I got to the point of murder. But I think Jesus knows the toll that it takes to carry these painful emotions with us day in and day out. I was recently listening to a TED Talk about exponential growth. The premise the speaker was communicating is that the human mind is not great at understanding exponential growth. And so it was interesting, as I'm thinking about anger in this sermon and listening about exponential growth, I saw a correlation between exponential growth and our ability uh, to deal with unresolved and pent-up anger and frustration. I know for me that I'm dealing with an unresolved frustration in one area of my life. It has a tendency to creep into other areas of my life, too. So for example's sake, only an example, not that this happens, but let's say I'm frustrated with Pastor Stacy at work. 
and I leave work and whatever was frustrating me with Pastor Stacy is not resolved. It's far easier for me to get home and little things that come up at home frustrate me and agitate me, not because there's any validity in that frustration, but because I'm still carrying the frustration from work. So back to the TED Talk about exponential growth. Let's say you have a piece of paper like that found in your Bible. The the width of this piece of paper, or the thickness, is about one thousandth of a centimeter in thickness. So you fold that piece of paper over, you now have a thickness of two thousandths of a centimeter. The TED Talk presenter asked the question, how many times, if you could fold this piece of paper as many times as you wanted to, how many times would you have to fold that paper in half and then in half again to reach from the earth all the way to the moon? So if you're on Facebook or YouTube, you can type your answer, how many times do you have to fold that into the chat? If you're in the room, you can whisper it to the person next to you, assuming they're in your social bubble. And if they're not, then you can just think it in your head. So if you continue to fold a piece of paper about the thickness of that found in your Bible, after folding that in half and half and half again ten times, you'd have the thickness of two to the tenth power in thickness. So two times two times two, ten times. And the total thickness of that paper would be about 1.024 centimeters in thickness. If you continue to fold that paper and you folded it 17 times total, you'd have about 131 centimeters in thickness. So about four feet in thickness. If you continue to fold that paper and you make it to 25 times of folding it in half and half again, the total depth or thickness of the paper would be 1,100 feet thick. So about the height of the Empire State Building. If you continue to fold, you make it to 30 times, you'd have a thickness of 6.5 miles, which is about the height that airplanes fly overhead. Continue to fold, make it to 40 times, you have 7,000 miles in thickness, the height that GPS satellites fly overhead. So the thickness to reach the moon simply by folding a piece of paper like that found in your Bible it would only take 45 times of folding that in half and in half again. I think frustration and anger, like exponential growth of paper, if unresolved anger in one area of our lives, it causes us to be more quickly agitated in another area of our lives. And we don't, if we don't resolve that agitation, it causes us to be quicker to be agitated in even more areas of our lives. I believe we have a finite capacity to carry anger and frustration. Our ability, it's going to have an exponential impact on our ability to reconcile our hearts. When I was listening to the TED Talk initially, I had a much higher number in mind. I think the same way we think we're able to deal with unresolved conflict and anger, anger can easily grow into resentment and despair and eventually into depression. In Gary Chapman's book, Anger, Taming a Powerful Emotion, he says that anger was always designed to be a visitor, not a resident. Chapman is clear that the feeling of anger is natural and real and it will visit us from time to time. But Chapman is also clear that we have the obligation to deal with that anger in productive ways, seeking reconciliation. So back to the text of Matthew 5. Jesus said, you have heard it said, do not murder. 
But I say don't be angry with your brothers or sisters. Do not speak evil, hate-filled things to them. Don't call anyone names. Jesus is telling us if there is unresolved conflict and anger that's causing you to say bad things about one another, before we do anything else on our journey of faith, we need to deal with those broken relationships with our brothers and sisters. We're unable to live fully into the kingdom of heaven now. Jesus is focused on the disposition of our hearts. He wants us to be right with each other before we seek to be right with God. If we are carrying pent-up frustrations, we are living in a prison of our minds. And until we resolve those burdens and those frustrations and hand them over to God, we're not fully experiencing the beauty of the kingdom in the here and now. By following this commandment as Jesus interprets it, we're able to walk as though we have one foot already in the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is calling the crowd to and us is something deeper than just avoiding murder. Jesus is calling us to true reconciliation. Jesus is calling the listeners to something something deeper than simply avoiding violent acts. He's calling us to avoid carrying any ill feelings toward anyone that might lead us to a place where we desire to act negatively towards our brothers and sisters. Jesus is not forbidding us from feeling angry, but he's calling us to a deeper way to deal with that anger instead of letting it harbor inside us, letting it consume our well-being. We read in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, chapter 4, In your anger, do not sin. David writes in Psalm 4, Be angry, but do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. To feel angry, to tell someone that you're angry, to talk about your anger with someone around you, those are all healthy and necessary ways to deal with our anger. We need to process our anger in productive ways. We need to talk about our feelings and we need to talk about our frustrations. Here at ECC, we hold ourselves to the words of the relational covenant, which says in one of the statements that we will speak directly to those with whom we disagree. So however, Jesus is calling us to seek reconciliation, but he is also calling out, speaking in hateful ways and name-calling. Sometimes the pain and the frustration are too raw for us to control in the moment, And that's why we're given the gift of rest. So although Jesus is calling us to seek reconciliation with our brothers and our sisters, he is also calling us to ensure that we have processed our own emotions before we enter into the reconciliation process. Perhaps Jesus is calling us to a middle ground between repression and expression, between anger and ignoring our anger and and venting our anger. What would it look like to process our anger in healthy ways and then seek reconciliation with our brothers and our sisters? I believe that we uh, have anger in our community here at ECC. I believe that there's anger in our broader community and in our nation. Are you holding on to anger? Are you harboring ill feelings towards your sisters or your brothers? I believe that we as kingdom people are called and commanded 
to deal with that anger in reconciling ways. I believe that prayer and rest provide us the opportunity to see more clearly. When we pray for our enemies, when we pray for those who we feel anger towards, we begin to see them as fellow kingdom people and we begin to lower the barriers that we have constructed around us. Through prayer and rest, harmony can be reestablished with the objects of our anger. And that anger begins to dissipate. Change is slow. Some of us have been carrying years of pent-up frustration and anger. But Jesus is inviting us to deal with that anger. It may be slow, but as long as we continue to pray for clarity and work on bringing to light our anger, I believe that we will see change individually and communally. Will you join me in committing to deal with the things that we are carrying? Will you join me in freeing ourselves from the burdensome work of carrying unresolved conflict? I believe with the help of the Spirit, we can stop carrying those things, and I believe our community will be stronger because of it. And I believe our community, others will see our community and be compelled to be a part of it. Will you join me? Let us pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, the Sermon on the Mount. I thank you for your desire for us to deal um, with the disposition of our hearts, Lord. I pray that if there is any anger inside of us, that you would bring that to light, that you would draw attention to those areas that we need your help in reconciliation, Lord. I pray that you would stir in us a desire to take steps towards reconciliation and that we could release some of those angers and those frustrations over to you. It's in the powerful name of your Son we pray. Amen.